I am one of the college interns, and I was also one of Pastor Brian's students at Boyce College. So, yes. And also, it's also really funny because Aaron is filling in for the college, and I'm filling in here, but Aaron is summarizing the entire two books of First and Second Samuel in one sermon. And so I, I don't want any part of that. He can have all of it. I'll take James, and I'll be fine. Um, but anyway, so we're going to be in James 4 and James 5, a little bit of James 5 today. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles there, that would be great. <clears throat> but anyway, so getting started, um, this, this is part of the book where James kind of makes a little bit of a shift from what he was talking about in the past couple chapters. This was a bit of an awkward part of the book where it doesn't seem to fit with a ton, but these passages we're talking about today fit really well together specifically. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and read those passages for us, and then we'll get started. So it's um, James 4, verses 13, and then through 5, verse 6. So I'm going to go ahead and get started and read it for us. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence, You have fattened your heart in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray for us real quick. Father in heaven, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for an incredible church of Lakeview. Thank you for for the youth staff. Thank you for Aaron. Thank you for everything you do for us. Thank you for your word. Please bless us and illuminate it by your spirit. Allow us to get out of it what you want. Give me the strength I need to teach. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so I don't know if y'all have ever been down like YouTube rabbit holes, but I do that quite often. And there's this one video that's been watching. It's this dog, and it's just sitting at its house, and it's like howling and whimpering because it thinks that its owner's left, but the owner's sitting there like upstairs videoing it. And so it's howling and whimpering, and then it's like mid-howl, and it like catches the owner's eye and like sees and goes, and then (laughs) there's another one where it'll be like, tearing up something in the house. And then the owner walks in and it's just like crock in its mouth. It's going, uh-oh, I see you're here now. This is not good. Or if, I, if you're weird like me, I, when I was a kid, I used to just create these scenarios in my room with my little action figures or whatever. And I would just get into my own little, I was basically doing virtual reality before it was cool, just in my brain, um, just creating all these sorts of scenarios. But, uh, and then as soon as somebody walked in, I would stop acting like a weirdo. Because as soon as somebody else gets involved, it just gets really weird. But um, 
and we might think, and all of that stuff in and of itself is innocent enough, and that's fine. But there are certain scenarios where we try to like escape reality from what it really is that shows a lot about how we think and how we interpret the world because we try to escape and try to form our own version of what we wish the world was like. And so we can basically play God in certain circumstances. Not saying that a kid using an imagination to play or you playing VR or a dog doing all that is sinful, but it gives a good analogy for us trying to escape from what is really happening. And so, and that's kind of what James is getting at in the passage we're talking about today. He's saying, we don't live as if God is who God is. A lot of times we will say we believe God is who he says he is, but then we, our lives don't reflect it. And it's very contradictory. It's like, if God is who he says he is, then we ought to live in light of that. And that's the big main overarching point of the message that we're getting at today is that we need to live in the light of the sovereign power of God. And this is used by two warnings he gives. So if you're taking notes, the first one is God rules sovereignly, therefore do not boast in tomorrow. And the second one is God judges sovereignly, therefore do not neglect the things God has given you. God rules sovereignly, therefore do not boast in tomorrow. God judges sovereignly, therefore do not neglect things that God has given. So let's start with point one. So in... Verse 13, he says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So R.C. Sproul was once teaching a class on the Westminster Confession of Faith. And he opened it by reading from chapter three of it, which says, God from all eternity did the most wise and holy of his counsel, his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And then he asked two questions of the class. First one was, is there anyone here that doesn't believe these words? And a lot of hands went up. And then he asked again, okay, is there any convinced atheists in the room? No one raised their hands. And then he made a pretty bold assertion. He said, if you raised your hand to the first question, then you should have raised it to the second. Because if you don't believe as God is sovereign, then you shouldn't believe God and God at all. And that might seem quite arrogant in a lot of ways. But if we believe the Bible is true, then we must believe that God is sovereign because that's the God that the Bible presents. The Bible doesn't present a God that has his hands tied behind his back. The Bible presents a God that creates the world by speaking. And so when we look at verse 13, this is why it's so arrogant Today or tomorrow, we will, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade or make a profit. And a lot of times we don't think that it's a big deal how we talk or anything like that, that we're just, that he's being a bit, just like overemphasizing a point. He's, it's like, why is he doing this? But out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So when we talk presumptuously about what we're going to do with our lives as if we're the one that control tomorrow. That's the issue. The issue isn't verbiage. The issue isn't our vocabulary. It's heart posture. So what James is correcting here is not, yeah, we just need to add a Lord willing at the end of our sentence and then we're cool. That's works. That's not what he's getting at. It's a heart problem that he's trying to correct here. And so James is correcting how we think and act 
Because God's in control, not humanity. Which is exactly what James is saying in verse 14 too. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. So what is your life? So in Proverbs 16.33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So just like the cast of a die that Lord controls, the smallest minute things. Genesis 1 is tell that he spoke the world into existence just by speaking. I don't know if you've ever tried to like assert authority. I bet your parents especially will get this analogy. If you try to tell someone to do something, unless you have a pretty good convincing argument or some sort of authority, they won't do it. Even if you do have a good authority, they likely won't. He merely just spoke and there was no hesitation or argument creation happened. There was no question of whether it was going to or not. There's no question of obedience or not. Everything obeys his voice. And then Hebrews 1.3 says, not only does everything obey his voice, he holds it all together by his power. Like if y'all ever think about how we can rely so much on the like laws of the world, of how gravity doesn't just stop working every once in a while, or how our atmosphere holds together so well. That's evidence that God exists and is holding it all together. Because if he's not doing that, then the likelihood of me falling through this floor is actually a possibility. But because God is so reliable, because God is who he says he is, we can trust that we're not just going to fall through the floor. And that's why it's so presumptuous for us to even think, oh yeah, these are my plans. This is my life. I get to do with what I please. And so... This is, this is what James is getting at. And so it's not necessarily bad to make plans. We need to make plans. One of my mentors back in Birmingham you always used to tell me, live as if the Lord comes back tomorrow, but prepare as if he's not going to come back for another thousand years. So make plans. Do good at your job. But don't hold them so tightly that you put yourself in the center of the universe. Because that's, that's the issue of what he's getting at here. And these are Christian people he's talking to. And so, and then he, at the end of that, he says, what is your life? And as Christians, that can seem kind of insulting to a certain degree. It's like, he's talking to believers. He's talking to a church and he's like, what are you? But in comparison to God, what are we? Apart from God, we literally are nothing. But with God, we have purpose and value. But apart from him, we don't have any. And so he's, if we're comparing us To God, what is our life? He says, a a mist that appears for a little while in a time, and then it vanishes. So that's why it's important to at least acknowledge and live in light of God's sovereignty, because he's God and we're not. But that's good news, because I cannot tell you the amount of times that I've like really wanted to do something and couldn't do it and then realized, oh, wow, I'm really glad I didn't have the ability to do that. And the longer you live, the more you'll realize that happens quite often, that you really want to do something and then the older you get, you more realize that, yeah, it probably wasn't the wisest thing in the world to even think about. But what does it look like? 15 to 17 tells us when he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And this was actually a pretty common phrase around the time, but it was more like, if God wills. And so even here, he's making an assertion of the biblical Lord, biblical Christ, the biblical Messiah, of he's the one that is willing. It's not just this merely 
everyone's kind of religious. And so if this ethereal being in the sky doesn't do something crazy, I'll be there. It's cool. But he's also saying at the very, the very beginning, it isn't just, oh, I'm going to be there. It's if I'm alive tomorrow by the providence of God, yeah. He, he's saying that we even need to thank God when we wake up in the morning because he's the one that controls our days. He's the one that numbers the hairs on our head. And then he says, we will live and do this or that. And if the Lord wills, in this passage, we think of it a lot of ways of, you know, if the Lord doesn't crazily change my plans, then I'll go do this or that or whatever. And that's probably the primary focus too. But his will and his word ought to be our primary focus all the time, no matter what we do anyway. That needs to be our focus because not only is, is Lord willing, like he's not going to call us a hurricane to come and like wipe out Lakeview, I'll be at church on Sunday, but what is his will for my life? Or what does his word say about how I need to pursue things? So not only in terms of your ability to believe places, but how you think about what you will do with your time is how we need to think about it as well. Because a lot of times we think about the Lord's will, kind of like we think about a dad pulling us on an inner tube behind a boat on July 4th, that we're just kind of white knuckle fisting our plans, trying to hope it doesn't sling us off. But God's not like that dad. That dad's trying to skip you across the water like a rock. But the God we follow isn't trying to do that. He's bringing his perfect plan into place. And so he's, he's rounding us up. He's bringing us all together so we can sing together with the saints from all nations, all trillings. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So he's not trying to hurt you. He's actually trying to better you. He's trying to bring you into the person who you're supposed to be. And so... This is why James says all this boasting is evil. As you is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. And like I said, if you just, on the surface, think, I'm just making plans without saying the Lord is willing, why is that evil? It's kind of harsh words. But when you put it in comparison to holding tightly to your plans, you're acting like your own God. You're idolizing your own self, you're idolizing your own plans. And it's not just you. I do this stuff all the time too. I cannot tell you, I was planning on being Louisville for like 10 years when I first moved there. And I ended up being there for two. And I held so tightly to the idea that I was going to be there for so, so, so long that it blinded me to opportunities I wasn't going to have if I didn't let, let go. Or even how the Lord brought me here, my mentor I was at a church in Birmingham and he basically had to tell me like, you need to leave. Not because anything bad, but it was basically, he had his hands tied. They didn't have any opportunities for me to teach. They didn't have opportunities for me to serve. And they're like, Chris, you just need to go somewhere so you can actually do what the Lord's calling you to. That wasn't a fun conversation, but if I would have been holding too tightly, I never would end up here. I never would have ended up getting to know half of y'all the way I do. I've never been, would never sat under Aaron and Kevin and Brian, and probably grown more than I ever have in my ministry since then. And so James is not merely telling the recipients of this letter, just add Lord willing to your vocab. He's challenging us to live every second of our day acknowledging who God is. Not just that he is, but acknowledging of how we see him, 
how we make our decisions, how we plan our days around him. Because a lot of us, we get so tied up in school and homework and sports and YouTube and Legos or whatever you want to call it, that we just literally forget about God except for the 20 minutes we do our devotional in the morning, if we do that, which I'm not the best at either. But he's God. And sometimes we just really forget that. And it's so beautiful once you recognize it, though. Like when you wake up in the morning realizing, you know, I could do this or I could do that. But at the end of the day, the Lord's holding my future. The Lord's holding all of his plans together. So who cares if I do this or I do that? I have him. That's why John Piper has this great book called God is the Gospel. So the gospel is not just your get out of hell free card. The gospel means you get to have God. That's personally, when he talks about God being utterly eternal, I think that's why, I think it's tied to the reason why we talk about eternal life so much is because the only reason why we have eternal life is when we put our faith and trust in him. So far as he continues to have life in himself, we will continue to have life in him. So, so far as God continues to be God, when we have our faith and hope in him, we will continue to be saved. Like our salvation is not wrapped up in our material being or anything like that. It's wrapped up in his eternalness, which is just really beautiful if you really want to think about it. But we can essentially turn ourselves into practical atheists in a lot of ways, which seems out of bounds for us, especially here at Lakeview at such a great church, because that should put a ringer in your ear of like, that doesn't sound good, because it's not. But this also isn't just a like bear you down thing either. It's like, this is good news that the sovereign God of the universe really cares how we live our day. He's actually invested in how we spend our time. He's actually invested on you not holding things too tightly so you can cling to him more. Like, if you were to pry your hands off of the sin you have in your life or any idol you have in your life, it might not feel good, but it's like a surgery. It's, it's going to be better for you in the long run. And then in 17, he switches a gear a little bit. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. So the first and primary thing he's getting at there is he's saying to the people that he's writing to, they can't claim ignorance now of like, well, I didn't know that we were supposed to do that. He's like, no, I've, I've told you now. Like, you need to follow in obedience. And so we, we can't do that either. And not that they were necessarily ignorant of it beforehand anyway. But second, he's telling the readers, it's not just your sins that you actively go out and do that God cares about. There's this category of sin called the sins of omission, the sins we fail to do, the things we leave undone. So an example would be like failing to evangelize or failing to love your neighbor as you ought to. Not just you call someone a mean name, but you you fail to care for the poor or you fail to honor your mother and father or you fail to be encouraging. You fail to go to church on Sunday. As Ephesians 10 said, do not neglect the gathering of yourselves. And so, but he cares a lot about what we actively do too. 
And that's, that goes into our second point, which is God judges sovereignly. Therefore, do not neglect the things that God has given. And these are verses one through six. Here, James is doing another warning. And he introduces in the same way now. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries coming upon you. That's one of the points when, if you don't preach through the Bible exegetically, if you don't work your way through books, that might be a little verse you might want to skip. That doesn't sound too pleasing. That doesn't sound very fun. Weep and howl for the miseries coming upon you. That's not going to work well at a motivational speech. But it's, this, this, is probably my, this is probably the most enjoyable part of the passage that I see. You reap and howl for the miseries coming upon you. This judgment that is coming, this, this pending eternal judgment when God, when Jesus returns and we all have to give account. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments have moth eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded. Um, this is, he's basically saying, all of the stuff that you've worked your entire life to just build up for yourself, to keep to yourself, to make yourself look cool, to be comfortable in this life, does not mean anything standing before God. Like, at all. And I'm a big car guy. I love working on cars. I drive a motorcycle. Like, love doing it. When I get before God of ages, I'm not going to be able to present to him my CB1100 and be like, look at this. He's going to be like, why do you have that? How did you get that here? But anyway, he starts out by telling us how horrible the judgment would be by saying that this isn't just going to be some annihilation thing where, you know, it's like execution style. Like I punish you once and then you never feel anything ever again. That's a heresy. You hear anybody preaching that? Don't listen to them. They're crazy. But He's saying, it's, it's not going to be comfortable. Like, this is really not going to be fun. And then he says, your riches have rotten and your garments are moth-eaten. Your silver and gold have corroded. And if y'all are anything like me, I had no idea before I started studying for this. Gold doesn't, gold doesn't rust. I didn't know that. Which is weird to think about. He's like, okay, but it corroded. And so what he's getting at there, he's like, the things that the earth says will last forever, that will never perish, that will always be valuable, he says, are utterly worthless before him. Like everything you could ever imagine as being worthy, worthy to him in a worldly way is not. It's not at all. And actually, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, he says. Because you, you, when you get before the God of ages and what you show to him of like, look what I did is Look at all the stuff I got for me. No. Also, if you show before him, look at all the stuff I did for other people too. Still not going to work because even your goodest deeds are filthy rags. So anytime you get before the Lord, this is a question I like to ask people during evangelism. If you were to die tonight and you were to stand before God and he would ask you, why should I let you in? If your plea is anything besides he died for me, you have the wrong answer. So if you're sitting here now and you're thinking through that question, you're like, well, I go to church. I go to Lakeview. My parents are great Christians. I read my Bible. All wonderful, awesome things that I would have died for at your age. My parents aren't Christians. 
Like that is incredible things. But if your plea before God is anything besides Jesus, it's not true. It's not what the Bible calls us. It's not what anything like that. Um, and he says it will be evident against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. And that's not the treasure that Jesus says, lay up your treasures in heaven because moths will not corrode them. These are, these are the opposite. He said, these, like, these are the treasures you've laid up and they're worthless here. Like gold's the stuff we walk on up there instead of asphalt. And so he gets into a little more and he starts saying, Behold, the wages of your laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So not only is, is you're going to get before God and he's going to hold you accountable, hold people accountable, hold me accountable for the things we present for him, where we put our heart in, where we put our hope, where we put our trust in. But he's also, he's, he's omniscient, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful. He knows how we've treated people. So any mean thing we've ever said, he's going to know about. And this isn't like a, oh my gosh. I mean, you could honestly think about all the mean things you've done. It's not going to be a fun practice. Wouldn't recommend you dwell on that, especially as a Christian. You're forgiven as long as you've repented, move on. But... He's, he, all of it's going to be brought before him. And I don't care how many good deeds we have, it's never enough to fulfill a holy God. And so that's why, as a just God, evil gets torn to pieces in his presence. Like, torn to utter pieces. And the cries of harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So that also, we also follow a God of justice, is what he's saying. Like all the injustice in the world, all the ways this world is upside down right now will be turned right. We're not going to get to the new heavens and the new earth and be like, wow, this place is not fun. This place is terrible. No, it's literally going to be the best place you could imagine and times that by like a billion. Because he's going to wipe away every tear. Every injustice will be paid for everything. Because on the last day, you either get justice or you get mercy. No one gets injustice because the people who received mercy, their sins were paid for on the cross. And the people who haven't put their faith in Christ, they're going to pay for them for the rest of eternity. And so there's no injustice being had, and that's what he's getting at there too. But then not only that, have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, God is listening. God is watching. God is here. He's not absent. He didn't just set this up like a timer and just go, here we go. Y'all have fun. I'll be back later. No, he's innately involved and innately cares about our day-to-day lives. It's like you sitting in math class, bored out of your mind. God's still there. God still cares. He's innately listening and caring for the injustice and the poor. This is a constant theme throughout Scripture is the injustice done to the poor. And so the rich here is also not necessarily a just utter plastering of anybody making money. But the old adage of, you can have money, just don't let money have you kind of deal. But also at the same time, we do need to be careful that the Bible is also 
pretty harsh when it comes to riches because he, it knows how dangerous they can be. I mean, there's a reason why it says it's easier for the camel to go through. I have a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. And here it warns the rich man about the miseries coming to it. We don't need to just be like, and just hop past that either. We need to take that pretty serious about how we look at what money we make and the mucky money you will make. Some, a lot of y'all are about to get jobs, stuff like that, or even like the toys you have or the games you have or anything. We need to be very good stewards of it. But then also on top of that, when I was growing up and like reading my Bible for the first time, so whenever I'd hear Lord of hosts, I, I was like, what does that even mean? What is Lord of hosts? And this might just mean me not growing up in a Bible background at all. Like I didn't even know the story of David Goliath was in the Bible until I was in like junior year of high school, maybe. I wasn't a very smart guy. Anyway, that's not the point. But Lord of hosts basically means Lord of armies. And so not only is this utterly terrifying for the people going against him, like this is a guy who commands the angels of heaven and all the armies that you could ever imagine, like all the archangels that could take out 100,000 people at once. And he's like, I'm more powerful than them and I commanded them. And so if you're doing injustice, don't think you're going to slip by. And also Christian, don't think that injustice is going to slip by. You're not just going to sit there and be like, man, I guess we're just going to get butt whooped down here and then deal with it later. No, God is coming back. It will be dealt with. And so that, and it's also just really encouraging for us of knowing this mighty God cares. He hears us. So it's innately personal too. And then he goes on, you have lived on earth in luxuries and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in, the, in a day of slaughter. He, that, that, when you really think about what he's saying there, he's saying evil has so corroded their lives that they have fallen so in love with it. They've, they've basically brought so much, they're bringing wrath upon themselves like you would fatten a calf to slaughter for dinner. That's pretty harsh. It's pretty terrifying. And what's even crazier about all the evil that these people were doing was the wages of your laborers who mowed your fields, who you kept back by fraud. They were, the evil had so consumed them that they didn't even care that the evil was affecting them anymore. They were literally harming and frauding their own people that were helping them. You see this in verse six, you have commend and condemned and murdered the righteous person. He did not resist you. That's connected to the people that they were fraudulently holding back their money from. They were basically removing their ability to have any means of income to buy food. So people were dying. And that's affecting their own source of income. Evil had so encapsulated these people that they didn't even care that it was hurting their own business. They just enjoyed pain, which that's what sin does. It gets into you and it hardens your heart. And that's why John Owen has one of my favorite quotes. It says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Because that's what sin does. There's no even playing field. You don't get to sit on the fence with sin. You're either killing it or it's killing you. There's no in between. But this also just gives echoes of Jesus on the cross too. That we as the unrighteous, wicked people put him up there. And he didn't resist us. 
because he was dying for us. And that's a beautiful thing to look back on too. But both of these things can seem really heavy of, wow, I really need to think about how I use my words and how I think. And then this last section, I don't think, here I think he's being very prophetic and very much of the way the Old Testament prophet would of condemning the outside world. I don't think he's talking to Christians in chapter 5, 1 through 6 like he is in chapter 4, 13 through 17. And so why would James write to these Christians condemning this world outside of them? Like that doesn't make much sense. Again, he's telling us justice, injustice will not continue on. He's also encouraging them, like God cares for your sorrows. God cares when you're hurting. And he's not sitting there with his hands tied, just going like, oh man, really hope this stops. Romans 8, 20, all things work together for God, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So even the things you're struggling with, God has you there for a reason. And so we need to pay attention to those and steward our time well and steward our thoughts well and steward how we think about things. And so we as people need to live in light of who God is. We need to live as if the God of the universe has come to the world, said, put your faith in me and I will save your soul. We need to live in light of that. We don't need to just make it this academic study that we do. And I'm probably more than guilty than most of that being a really bad temptation for me because I love reading theology. I love studying the Bible. It's fun, but it's really dangerous to turn it into just to an intellectual game because we talked, I mean, James talks about it in chapter, chapter two. We're doers of the word, not just hearers only. If you can show me your faith apart from works, doesn't exist. And so this is how faith lives it out, in, in repentance. And so that's, that's the main point of what I want to drive at. And one last thing is the evil that was have had in 1 through 7 of chapter 5. Man, I don't think you'll understand how often that stuff happens, especially when it comes to like in the church. People fall so in love with the sin that their brother or sister or mom or dad will confront them and be like, hey, like, let's get this, let's get this out. Like, let's go ahead and cut it off. Like, I'm here to help you. But they have fallen so deeply in love with their sin that they now hate the person trying to help them get out of it. That happens a lot with people in church discipline who they, they refuse to repent for something and they start trashing the church because the church is trying to help them get out of it or anything like that. And it just ruins their life. Like sin is so deadly that judgment's coming. We need to be careful with it. Not only for us, but the people we care about too. But again, as Alistair Begg said in one of his quotes, we need to wake up each day and tell ourselves and remind ourselves we are in the presence of the living God each second of every day and live in light of that.